Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back up here with you all again. Uh, In case you don't know me, I am Josh. I'm the pastor for children and youth. And uh, Stephen is not here, obviously. Uh, He is in Ghana, as you guys have already heard. Stephen, as well as Dave Murray and Glenn McLaughlin. And so even as we gather or start our time now, I would like for us to lift them up as well as our time now in the Word. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can gather here without fear of persecution. We thank you that we can even gather here because you have made us. And so as we dive into your word today, I ask that you would teach us, that you would grow us through it, that you would conform us into the likeness of Christ as we hear your word. And also want to lift up the three gentlemen who are in Ghana. Would you work mightily through them this week as they're there? We thank you for them giving of their time and of their resources to go. Would you keep them healthy? Would you provide for them divine opportunities that only you could have orchestrated, that they can teach your word, that they can teach pastors how to study the Bible, that they might faithfully proclaim it. And so we ask that you give Dave and Stephen and Glenn wisdom as they teach this week, and that it wouldn't just be a a dry theological knowledge that they gain this week, that the pastors gain this week, but that the truths that they learn, that it would be embedded in their minds, that it would take root in their study of your word, that it would transform them, and that as they teach and preach in Ghana, that you would change a people for yourself, even as you are doing through us today in this word. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So if you are using the Pew Bible, if you would open up to page one, and even as Craig said earlier, if you do not have a Bible, we would encourage you to take this, take it home. We have them in the pew for you to use today, but also for you to take home as well. And we're going to be on page one. If you're using your own Bible, then it's going to be Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 31. And I'd like for us to see how man is unique Man is unique in all of God's creation, and that's because God has given man his image. And even the, the, the title for this book, Genesis, gives us a perspective, a glimpse into what the whole book is about. Genesis meaning origins or beginning, and it gets that name from the very first phrase of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, "...in the beginning." And so in this book as a whole, we see the beginning of the world. We see the beginning of people. We even see the beginning of sin, as well as the beginning of God's people, Israel. All of this is in the beginning, in Genesis. And so I want us to even think about this. And Mark Twain has said, two of the most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day that you learn why you were born. 
And so you're here. Day one's already accomplished. Day two, if you don't know already, hopefully you'll leave today knowing why God has made you, why God has made all of us. And it's not just something that we should just take for granted because this is at the base, at the foundation of who we are. It shapes who we are and what we do. And you see this played out when we don't rightly understand why we were created. Even just in the last few weeks, uh, if you don't know her, and her name's Rhonda Rousey. She's one of the best MMA fighters in the world. And she lost just a few months ago. It was her first loss. And she's on the Ellen DeGeneres show. She's weeping. She's crying. She can barely even talk because everything in her life is shattered because she lost one fight. She lost one fight, and now she wanted, she even admitted, she said, I contemplated suicide. I'm huddled in a ball after the fight. And the only reason she said that I thought there was any hope was because my husband was beside me. And he had a smile on his face. And so when we don't rightly understand why we are here, it can change everything about life. It can change everything about what we do. And so even today, I hope that we can connect the image of God when he created us to our purpose. And the image of God is not something that's just important today. It's been important throughout all of history. And John Hammett says this, the image of God is important in a variety of ways. Historically, one might easily argue that it was central in the Reformation and remains crucial today as the indispensable background for the doctrine of salvation. And theologically, it's not only important in itself, but also leads us into discussions of the fall, that is how sin enters the world, and regeneration, that is how we are made new in Christ. And practically, the image of God is the basis for human dignity, and a correct understanding of it is the basis for truly Christian human relationships. And so it's important that we know this. It's important that we understand and not just glaze over reading again Genesis 1 because it's something that you've heard possibly since you were three or four years old. And it's not just something that we glaze over because we've heard it over and over, but the reason why it keeps coming up is because it has massive implications for all of life. And so as we get ready to read... We're going to jump into the middle of day six of creation. So God's created day one and day two, three, four, five. He's created light. He's created the heavens and the earth, land and sea, plants, animals. And now we jump into day six where he's going to create people. And up until this point, every time he's created, he says, let there be, and it was. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be plants, and there's plants. But as we read, I want you to notice there's something different and distinct about how God creates people. He doesn't say, let there be. He says, let us make. And so we can't gloss over, we can't miss it. And even as we read, here are the three things I want us to take from today. That God created people. God created people in his image. And all people are to bear the image of God on earth. 
So would you read with me now in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed that is in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we see that God creates people. You are not here by an accident. Despite maybe your parents saying we weren't planning on you, surprise, you're not an accident. You are not a surprise to God. He is the one who numbered your days even before you were formed. And so it's clear even here that God creates people. And we're not placed here by some life form. We didn't evolve from some bacteria, a protozoa. It was God's plan. And we see that even in Psalm 139, right? You guys are probably very familiar with it. Verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. And so we see God knows who you are and is forming you and I Before we were even born, before your parents even knew they were expecting you, God is forming people, children. And we see God forming Adam and Eve here in Genesis. He makes them. He makes them from the dust and he breathes life into them. We see that in Genesis 2. It's by no mistake. And so we can't overlook this, right? If we overlook that there is a God and that there is a God who creates, then everything else has to be explained in some other way. In fact, Francis Crick, co-discoverer of DNA, he looks at DNA and he says, there's no possible way that life has evolved in five billion years. It's too complex that life has evolved in five billion years. This is an unbelieving man, very smart man, making these assumptions, or he's, he's assuming these things. And he says, it's, life is too complicated, even looking at DNA, 
human life is too complicated that we have evolved in even five billion years. But he doesn't believe in God, and so he's got to explain it some other way, and he explains it by saying, we were brought here by some other life form. Right? So when we deny that there is a God, and we deny that this God is a creator God, we have to explain life in some other way. And the author of Genesis here is very clear. Right? He could have gone into, if, if God had wanted to, God have, could have told Moses, these are the exact details on how creation is played out. But that's not the point here. The point is not that you and I would know how dinosaurs are formed or that how Cain got a wife. The point is that you and I are created by God himself. And so we can't overlook that. We can't place too high of an importance on things that aren't as important as the writer of Genesis 1 here tells us. And God creates on purpose. Authors, artists, they don't create just haphazardly. They don't just decide to throw some paint on a canvas. Here it is, although sometimes it may look like that. Authors and artists, they create with a purpose in mind. If finite men create with a purpose in mind, don't you think our Heavenly Father, the one who knows all things, creates with a purpose in mind? He creates you and I with a purpose. And so, ladies, men, hear this. You and I are not made merely to be objects of someone else's love and affection. We're not made that we can provide all the material things that our family could ever dream of. You and I are made that we might glorify God, our maker, the one who has made heaven and earth The same one who in days one through five of creation creates light and plants, photosynthesis, right? We don't even think about that most of the time. Creating gravity, the wings that birds fly with, the God who creates mountains and glaciers and dolphins and sonar, all these things he creates in days one through five in the beginning of six. And then we see God says, not just let there be, but let us make. The triune God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image. You and I are not just simply here just because we happen to evolve. We weren't just brought here by some other life form, but God created people. But we also see in verses 26 and 27 that God created people in his image. And so that's another thing that sets people apart from the rest of God's creation is not only does he say, let us make, but let us make man in our image. Let us make men and women in our image. The most important fact that anyone can state about a human being is that he or she is created in the image of God. It gives us dignity. It gives us worth. And size, we see here, size doesn't matter, right? If we compare man to our earth, to our solar system, to our universe, even as Mark has reminded us, the glories of our universe that we can see through the Hubble telescope photographs. Man is but a speck of dust compared to all these. But yet God says, 
in verse 26, let us make man in our image. So even in the size of the creation doesn't determine the value or the importance. But the importance is based on what God thinks is important, and that is people. And so what's it mean that we are created in God's image? I think there's a whole lot. I don't think even in our time today, or even if we had 20 weeks of time, that we might be able to really ponder and understand the full depths of what it means to be in the image of God. But I think here are a few of those. It means that we are created as moral beings. That we have a moral accountability before God, but also He's created in each one of us an inner sense of right and wrong. You know when you do wrong, right? It's not that you often have to have it pointed out to you. Sometimes we condemn ourselves even more than others because we see the wrong in ourselves way more often than others. We're also spiritual beings. We have physical bodies, but we're also immaterial spiritual beings. And we can also pray to God. Think about that. We take it for, for granted often, and we even have done that a few times today already. But we, a creation of God, can pray to the one who makes us. It astounds me that so often I take for granted I can pray to my God, to the one who made me. You can pray to God, the one who made you, the one who made mountains, that you look at in awe, but so often we forget to stand in awe of our God and make our appeals and cry out to him. We're also immortal, right? Once we've been created, we don't cease to exist, once God has created you and I, even when this earthly body dies, our spirit continues on. And eventually when Christ returns, our spirit and body will be reunited together again as well. We also have mental capabilities. We have the ability to reason, to think, and to learn. And these, we may say, well, we see some of these same things in animals, right? And I would say you're right, we do. Beavers build dams and Birds build nests. But beavers have been building dams the same way, and birds have been building nests the same way since creation. People have the ability to learn and think and grow and change the way that we're doing things and do things better. We're continually developing greater skill and complexity and technology in agriculture, in science. We also have a mental capacity to, to use language. Even my kids can learn a different language. You can learn a different language. You can communicate in different ways to different people. But also, even something even more simple than that, I think, is that my two oldest kids, 7 and 12, they can write a letter. They can write a letter to me. They can write a letter to the grandparents. And to my knowledge, there's no other life forms, chimpanzees, that are writing letters to their parents or grandparents, right? Even some of the, the things that we might attribute to animals, humans have a greater capacity to do with a greater complexity. And those of you who have daughters, 
we have a complexity of emotions, right? In the one moment, your daughter's laughing and crying. In the very same instance, she's crying. Or sorry, she's laughing, but then in the same instance, she's crying. I have that in my house. I know, I know you guys know. It happens, right? Or even when you look at a picture of a loved one. Maybe of when your kids were young, or maybe it was of a parent before they died. You look at the picture with happiness. You look at the picture and you think about the fond memories that you maybe formed and had with them. But then you also think with a bit of sadness. I miss my mom. Man, I really remember those days when my kids were young. But then we can also think with a gratefulness in our heart that God saves people. And the parent that you may look at in the picture that may have passed away, you can look with a hope that you will one day be with them again too. And so we have these, these emotions that are so complex and it's not just a simple, I'm happy or I'm angry. But then also I think part of this image of God is that God's created us to be relational people. God's created us to be in relationship with one another. We do this with friends and with family. We see it really well in marriage. That's complex. It's not easy. And we even see it with God and his people in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 talks about Jesus being the groom and the church, his bride. And so God's created us as relational people, not just with one another, but even with himself, that we might know him, that we might submit ourselves to him. And then also God has created us in his image by giving us physical bodies. Now, I'm not saying that God himself has a body. We know from John chapter 4 that God is without body. But even parts of our body image or mimic God and who he is, right? He gives us eyes to see. God himself sees and knows all things that are going on on the earth. He gives us ears to hear. God hears his people when they cry out to him. He does this over and over and over in the Old Testament when the people of Israel cry out because they're in bondage. God hears their cry and relents on his judgment on them. But then also we cry out to God through prayer and he hears us. He answers us. And even now, using my mouth, we all have mouths. God gives us mouths to communicate. He himself communicates to us through his word today even. And so God has made us, even with a physical body, that reflects who he is. And so being in his image makes humanity unique among all of God's creation. But there's a slight problem, right? Everything that we've seen in Genesis 1, God's created men in his image, but this is all before the fall. So what happens once we get to Genesis 3 and man has sinned, sin has entered the world and affected everything, all of creation, the earth itself, but even sin affects people. Does man lose the image of God after sin? No, he doesn't. That image may be marred, that image may be tainted in some ways, but man, we have not lost the image of God in us completely. 
We see this by looking at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is after the fall. This is after Moses or after Noah has been delivered from the flood. And it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So even after sin has entered the world, even after you and I have been tainted by sin and our world's been affected by sin, God says you're still valuable and I will require of someone else who destroys the image of God for their life to be required as well. God values you and I so much that even after sin, he says, the image of myself in you is still worthy, is still valuable. And there are consequences, right? But there's not, we're not left without hope. We're not left to, to just be in this world by ourselves. And, and sometimes we, we think about the, the sentence to err is human, that everyone makes mistakes or to be human is to, to mess up, to sin. And in some ways, yeah, it's right. A lot of us would say, I absolutely, I agree with that. But I wonder if, if it actually might be backwards. I wonder if, if actually to be human is to be thinking about what we originally were created to be, right? Even when we look at the news and we hear of horrible acts of violence, we say that's inhumane. We see sin, grievous sin, and we say that's inhumane. And Christ does not leave us there. He does not leave us here in our sin. Christ has come. He set aside. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, to be held on to. But he says, the image of God in these people, I'm going to give my life for them. I want to recreate. I want to make new again that which was marred by sin, by their own sin, in fact. I'm going to give my life for you and for me that they might be recreated in the image of God. And so could it be that we are most human when we're daily striving to be like God? Listen to these, these three passages. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then again, Ephesians 4, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then listen again to the passage Craig read earlier for us from Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. And so perhaps, could it not be that you and I are more like humans, are more human, when we are pursuing Christ, when we have been made new into His image, and as we strive after Him day after day, and it is a renewing of our mind, but it's more than just our mind. It's also our bodies, the way that we act, the way that we live. 
And this image of God means that all of life is important. All of life holds dignity. It's not just some theological truth that we hold out here that we read in Scripture, but it also affects the daily life. It affects the way that we treat people, right? The second greatest commandment, Christ says, is love your neighbor as yourself. If I am seeing the image of God in my neighbor, then it's going to root out any anger I have. It's going to get rid of evil thoughts. It's going to put aside a tongue that speaks harshly or insults and slanders. And perhaps, if we even view it that way, then if I'm slandering or insulting someone else, is it not also possible that if I'm doing that to the image of God and someone else, then I am, in fact, actually insulting and slandering God himself? If I'm doing that to the image of God and someone else? I think it may be true. So I think the image of God, the value placed upon us, the dignity that we have because of his image, changes the way that we treat people. It changes the way that we see the unborn, the way that we care for the unborn, the way that we protect the elderly, the marginalized, the minorities. Just because you and I may be in the, my, the majority in America, middle-class white people, we too have a responsibility because of the image of God in all people to speak up for all people, for the good of all people. Not just for what benefits us, not just for what makes life easier for us. And so we've seen that God created people. We've seen that God creates people in his image. But now also I want us to see that all people are to bear the image of God on earth. And so I think in this, there's, there's two things into this bearing the image of God. And that is that we represent him, and so we should rule like him. And also, to bear the image of God on the earth means that we make disciples of all nations. So God intends, by giving us his image, for us to represent him and rule like he rules, or like he would rule on the earth. We're to subdue, to have dominion in a way that's like God. He doesn't leave us here that we might rule for our own benefit, that we might live for our own benefit. He does this. He gives man the mandate to rule like he would rule by saying in verse 29, I give you the earth. I'm giving these things to you. And so we should represent him. Even 2 Corinthians 5.20 talks about we are ambassadors of Christ. So what's an ambassador? It's, an ambassador doesn't have authority of himself. An ambassador is one who represents someone else. He has authority to speak for that person. And so you and I, representatives, ambassadors of Christ, are to speak for and speak like God would speak. You and I are supposed to rule and subdue the earth as if God were doing that through us. So that means our vocations, 
They're not just a simple way to bring home a paycheck to provide for your families. Your vocations are you subduing and ruling, having dominion over the earth. Your vocations are given to you by God that you might rule in a way that He does. That you might make much of Him by serving others, by working to the good of other people. And we also see that to to bear this image of God on earth is that, that we would be making disciples. It doesn't say disciples in the text, right? So you're like, Josh, where are you getting that? All right, stick with me. So at this point in creation, people are perfect. They've not sinned. They've not been marred by the effects of sin. And God gives them the mandate, right? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the intent is that Adam and Eve are supposed to be fruitful, have babies, have lots of babies, enjoy having babies, fill the earth with people like you. I've made you in my image, now go fill the earth with people like yourself. Go fill the earth with image bearers of God. Go fill the earth with worshipers, people who are walking with God, who are worshiping Him rightly. Fill the earth with people made in the image of God who are worshiping God Himself. We see this in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Psalm 57, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. So eventually one day the earth will be filled with God's glory through his people, through the knowledge of himself throughout the whole earth, that those people would be worshiping God, that they'd be loving him, enjoying him. And so do you get the point? Genesis 1, fill the earth with worshipers. It doesn't end when sin enters the world. We see it phrased differently in the New Testament, I think. When Christ gives the command in the Great Commission, as you go, make disciples. And what's a disciple? A disciple is someone who follows Christ, who says, I've counted the cost. I'm going to follow and worship Christ above all things. Sounds like a worshiper to me. You and I are called to be disciples, to be worshipers of God. And so when sent into the world... That did not end the command to go and fill the earth with worshipers. It's actually the imperative, I think, is actually heightened now because there's earth filled with people that aren't all worshiping God. And so may you and I have a burden to take God's word to the nations, to take God so that other people might be worshipers, might be disciples of God. But then also, God doesn't just give them this command to go be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He also blesses them, right? In verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it. And so God doesn't just give them the command, hey, go fill the earth with worshipers. Hey, go make disciples. But he also blesses them to do it. 
I think that's something very similar as we see in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 20, where God says, or Christ says, I'm with you until the end of the age. How is he with us? He's with us by giving us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to bless us on the mission of making disciples of all nations. And so I think for you and I, there's massive, massive implications that we are created by God. We are creating God's image, but then also that we are to bear his image to all the earth. And so even as I've been thinking through this, uh, Pastor Stephen's email, if you didn't get it, uh, it was sent out on Thursday or Friday, I think. But if you did, this will hit home. Pastor Stephen sent an email out and asked for all of us to be con- continuing, starting now, to be praying for a prayer emphasis coming up in a few weeks. And he said it was very timely that he's been reading in Luke 10. And it says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers into the harvest. And so you and I, given the charge of making disciples to follow Christ in all nations, may we pray with an earnestness that God would use us because of the promises that he will provide the harvest doesn't say you provide the harvest. He will provide the harvest. Pray that there are laborers to go out. So even today, as we leave, may your prayer be at lunchtime even. God, would you raise up laborers to reap the harvest of God? And so I've just been praying this week, thinking, and I don't know if you know, but there's on average about 270 people have been in the service this past month. I'm not counting kids in nursery, but here in the service, there's been about 270 people. I'm counting kids in that that are in here because even kids can be ones who make disciples. Your seven, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, they can make disciples for Christ. So I'm including all of us, 270 of us. If we had two people in our life, which I know you do. I know you've got at least two people in your life that don't know Christ, whether it's a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. If we could choose two people today, pray for those two people for the rest of this year and have the goal of building intentional gospel-related relationships with these people. Doesn't mean you can't talk to anybody else. I'm not saying that. But just two people. So if 270 of us had two people in our mind and our heart that we're continually praying for and lifting up, and we'll say one out of every eight of those people come to know Christ. You might say, Josh, that sounds kind of low. You might say, Josh, that sounds kind of high. But we'll just say one out of every eight. That would be 67 people by the end of the year that come to know Christ. That would transform this group. Because I guarantee you, after you see two or three friends come to know Christ, the, the desire for that's only going to grow and increase. Why? Because I think God has given us his image. And if we understand that his image is valuable and all people are worth 
an infinite amount because of his image in us, to see souls redeemed and more like Christ each day that will only grow in us a hunger to see it more. And so imagine 67 more people with us next year at this time because you and I may have committed to pray for, to lift up, to spend time with, and to share the gospel with. This room is already fairly full. It'd be packed. But it's not about just having bottoms and seats. It's because the image of God in all people is valuable, has dignity before our Father who's created them. And so I would like to challenge you guys, maybe today, husbands, wives, friends, would you even consider the rest of today, maybe at lunch, talk about how you might be able to think about who you want to invest in, not for your own sake, not so that somebody can say, good for you, but with a gospel intentionality that the image of God might be restored in people. So would you pray with me? Father, we ask that that today you would give us a heightened sense of what is already true. That you would open our eyes and our ears to see reality. And that is that you've created us. You've created us in your image. And that we are to be ones who bear your image on earth. Through the way that we live, the way that we raise our families, the way that we work. We're to bear your image by the way that we live in front of others and the way that we proclaim you. And so I ask that you would give us eyes to see those around us who need you. I ask that you, in your son's name, would reveal to us the hurt and the broken that we might share the hope of Christ with them? Would you give us a hunger to see the lost come to know you? Not just because it's something that we should do, but because we see how valuable people are in your eyes. We see them as ones who have been made in the image of their creator. Would you give us a great love for yourself? And as you do that, I trust and ask that you will give us a great love for people. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.